Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. I'm talking to you on a Tuesday afternoon, November 16th, 2021. And I'm currently uh, waiting for two things to drop. The Kyle Rittenhouse verdict and the Spider-Man trailer. This podcast is now sponsored by Disney and Sony. Just non-stop Kyle Rittenhouse talk and just such knee-jerk reactionary talk to all over social media. It's almost like you have to get off social media and just like DM people to have a normal conversation about it. Everyone is so amped up, pissing contest, politically postured, ready to go, you know, knives sharpened, knives out, ready to fight, battle. And by battle, I just mean completely parrot other people's talking points and just like go full pod person. I mean, let's just get this out of the way at the beginning. If anybody's listened to this podcast before and you're just listening for the first time now, this will be sort of your litmus test for if you should keep listening or not. Uh, I mean, obviously, I think Kyle Rittenhouse is a fucking dumb fuck. And I would never want to associate with someone like that for as long as I live. It's pretty obvious that he was going there looking for a fight. Uh, He wasn't going there to quote-unquote protect property if you imagine this sort of rose-colored glasses way of looking at reality that police exist to protect the public or to protect property or to stop crime uh, it's a fantasy because if you've actually known anybody um, who knows anybody who's gone into the police who has a relative as a police officer if you know enough people like that eventually you'll come across the story of someone who wanted to join the police force so they can have an excuse to get in a shootout or eventually kill someone someday. So just putting this out there that there are quite a lot of cops who, as they're doing their recruitment process into the police force, will tell their friends and colleagues that they do have a murder fantasy and that becoming a cop will allow them someday to fulfill on some level that fantasy, legally speaking. So I'm sorry if you've gotten yourself twisted into this weird frame where you believe all the weird alternative media narratives and sort of right narratives about how Kyle Rittenhouse was a medic who was just going there to help people. I mean, it's obvious that he fucking wasn't. So if you're one of those type of people who takes pride in not believing in CNN or, you know, not believing Don Lemon or Anderson Cooper, then don't believe this shit either. It's just interesting that so many people were like, yeah, this prosecutor is so fucking horrible. Damn, they really railroaded this kid. The prosecutor has no case. I mean, I watched some video of the trial. Like, you have to pretty much watch it yourself to come to any, I think, intelligent conclusions. But it's just so interesting how when you only see the spin and the lens that certain media narratives are pushing, you just get a completely different impression. I mean, I'll admit that the prosecutor wasn't doing a great job. But watching the clips I watched, I just got a completely different impression than this totally distorted narrative I was hearing that the prosecutor totally fucked this up and that the judge was rightfully chastising him. I mean, you watch just 30 seconds of that trial and it's obvious the judge out of the gates really sympathizes with Kyle Rittenhouse. So to say that it's a rigged justice system because prosecutors can bring these overzealous cases against, you know, teenagers that were just there to protect property. I mean, it's such a bizarre deflection away from the fact that the judge is fucking sucking Kyle Rittenhouse's dick under the fucking Jesus Christ. I don't even I 
probably shouldn't have used a metaphor like that, but it's there's nothing wrong with sucking dick. The problem is that it just it seems rigged like when you watch it in terms of the judge like completely siding with the defense. So if that's my impression just from watching it without any spin, then I just don't understand how people are watching this and believing that this is sort of a a kid who's been railroaded and the justice system is rigged. The jury is deciding right now what to do with them. And I mean, from my perspective, if I was on a jury and I saw a judge sympathizing that much with one side in the courtroom, like to that extent, unless the prosecution was just completely off the rails insane, which they weren't, I, that would be a point against the defense. I'd be like, that seems rigged. So I just, it's so weird, this headspace that some of these conservatives get into, and even some of these libertarians, it's like, if you're a libertarian and you're dying on this hill, you're just sucking up alternative media narratives that are essentially just controlled opposition. At this point, things on the, in the alternative media have gotten so lockstep that it's just like, it, to me, it's just as bad as CNN if you're just sucking in those narratives and repeating them. I think just use common sense. Do you know people in real life who would go to a protest that far away and bring an assault rifle and do it with good intent? Does that sound plausible to you? Or does it sound more like someone you know who was itching for some kind of confrontation or fight and then happened to have a powerful assault rifle and could, you know, easily not defend themselves, but could kill somebody and have a little body count? There's a difference between somebody going and looking for a confrontation and bringing a dangerous weapon in that conversation than someone actually defending themselves. So I think that that's at the crux of this, how you know detailed these conservatives want to get in terms of like who was charging him with what and what how they came at him. One of the guys grabbed his gun, so that guy deserved to have his hand blown off or whatever the narrative they're putting out is. Peel it back from that and just think why, what did this kid do? You know, why did he put himself in this position? Why did a 17-year-old feel compelled to do this? And I think the prosecution, I thought their strongest part of their case that I watched was they were showing that he clearly didn't have good intent and that he had an intent to stir things up. And the judge, you know, of course, kept throwing all that shit out. Anyways, I'm not trying to defend this prosecutor. I don't fucking care. I'm not in the habit of defending a state prosecutor. I mean, in general, I will take a defense attorney's side more but this case has become so politicized and such a political football that it's just a joke at this point it'll be funny actually to see what happens to the internet once this spider-man far from home trailer number two drops because it's supposed to drop like apparently like in 45 minutes there hasn't been like a marvel cinematic universe like tentpole type super movie superhero movie in years i mean before the pandemic that would like blast the internet with this much you know, intensity. So it'll, it'll be interesting. I mean, I, I know I was making a joke about shilling for Disney earlier, uh, because it is kind of hilarious how much they fucked up and the Eternals looks like utter trash. Like it just, it's so unappealing looking, uh, of a movie. It's shocking actually that they just fucked up so fucking bad. Now that the Shang-Chi hype sort of died down, I kind of almost just want to see it now. Cause like the hype is gone. That one looks okay. Um, when you click on the video feed for the Kyle Rittenhouse trial right now, it's just a little, it looks like a hillbilly, like Masonic logo, like plaque inside the courtroom that the camera is just positioned on. This like wooden plaque uh, showing, it looks almost like two explorers, early pioneer settlers in the United States. Basically, everything in the United States, symbolic wise, is on a spectrum from regal Freemasonry 
to like hillbilly Freemason, like Davy Crockett. I mean, that's pretty much our aesthetic as a country. You go from regal, opulent, marble column Freemasonry to hillbilly, raccoon cap, you know, Red Dead Redemption Freemason. But I wanted to go into something else that's just bizarre and that's gaining more traction, and that is the Havana Syndrome hype. Havana Syndrome seems like it's getting a lot more attention now because Anthony Blinken announced that there's going to be a commission formed to look into this, to look into what's happening with Havana Syndrome. And if people don't know what that is, it's this idea that CIA agents and other U.S. diplomats in various station positions around the world started, I guess, in Cuba. This is why they call it Havana Syndrome. Are getting some form of brain damage from what the U.S. government describes themselves as some kind of microwave energy weapon. Now, as ridiculous as this sounds, this has been in the news for the last three or four years. They've been talking about this. They've been trying to show medical documentation in various ways, trying to show that it causes real brain damage. Um, I'm looking over several medical journals right now, and I don't see anything showing that it causes real brain damage. There is one neuroimaging finding uh, that I think probably got the closest to showing anything definitive. It's from 2019. It's called Neuroimaging Findings in U.S. Government Personnel with Possible Exposure to Directional Phenomena in Havana, Cuba. Now, this is all, this is really all they say. This is the summary of their findings. It's not conclusive. And this study was done by, just so I know exactly who it's done by. Um, I don't know if this is a government study. It's done by, it's done on the JAMA network, but there's a bunch of different doctors involved in this. And I'm assuming it had to have been done by the U.S. government because it involves U.S. government employees who claim to have experienced uh, brain damage from Havana syndrome. So let's just run on the assumption that this was somehow conducted either with the funding of or with U.S. government personnel in control of the study. Because I don't know how you're going to get 40 government personnel with 48 healthy controls. I, I'm thinking that means they used 88 government personnel for the study. But basically, the key points, the findings is, it says, in this study comparing 40 U.S. government personnel with 48 healthy controls, advanced brain magnetic resonance imaging techniques revealed significant between-group differences in whole brain white matter volume, regional gray and white matter volume, Cerebellar tissue, microstructural integrity, and functional connectivity in the auditory and visual spatial subnetworks, but not in the executive control subnetwork. And then the meaning is neuroimaging findings differed between controls and U.S. government personnel who experienced neurological signs and symptoms after potential directional phenomena exposure in Havana, Cuba. Although the clinical relevance of these differences is uncertain and may require further study. So if we're to believe this study and these neuroimaging results, this is the closest thing that we could grasp onto to say that maybe there is something real happening here and that there is a measurable difference in brain scans between people who have claimed to have these symptoms and people who don't. This does not say anything in either direction about if this was done by a directed energy weapon. It only talks about people who are experiencing certain symptoms. 
versus the people who are not. And saying that the people who say they have these symptoms have some kind of different result in their neuroimaging, that the results, even though they're visually and you could measure the differences, they don't yield anything important in terms of determining what difference is happening in the brains between these two people. So in reality, this could just mean that these diplomats in Havana, Cuba, were exposed to something that changed their brain chemistry or their you know, MRI readings in a way that is still completely mysterious, if we're to believe this study. So what I'm saying is this means nothing about whether this is a weapon or whether they were targeted because they were CIA or not. This means absolutely nothing about that. Now, how did this go from, oh, this is loud cicadas and crickets in tropical areas that are causing anxiety attacks for U.S. diplomats and CIA assets to, yes, this is a brain-damaging weapon and we need to figure out how to stop it or who's doing it. How did it go from that to that? I mean, it seems like the obvious answer is that there's like a CIA pressure campaign from within the U.S. government to use this as some kind of, you know, load up a gun and sort of decide who to point it at. It's like, could it be China? Could it be Cuba? Could it be Russia? Who's doing this? Once we find out who's doing this, they're going to be in trouble. We're going to have to respond to it in some way. I mean, you could see the stepping stones being built. So, of course, it makes sense why the U.S. government or intel agencies or people who are pushing this would give up and just be like, yeah, it's probably crickets. We're, we're good. I mean, I don't know how many of them are true believers that this is actually a brain damage causing weapon or not, um, but it's very interesting. And I think that we might just, at least the left, can't speak for all leftists, but I noticed that most people are just making a joke out of this. And yeah, they probably just had bad hangovers. These fucking, you know, lightweights, these CIA agents, they were out partying, they had a bad hangover. Um, what if it is something real? happening and what if it's sort of a prelude to sort of a arms race or propaganda track that's being laid out in a way that we can't fully see now you know that it's not just that cyber war is something to make us paranoid about paranoid enough about with russia and china and whoever else is trying to sabotage us by cyber attacking us what if it becomes sort of this thing where now like foreign adversaries can wage war on like on the domestic public, not just like CIA assets, but can just shoot microwave weapons like from like a satellite. I mean, where is this going to go? I guess is the question I'm wondering, because if they're trying to show that this is a real thing, it's really causing real brain damage and it's a microwave weapon, how far can they take that hysteria in the future? I'm actually a little bit surprised they haven't taken it further yet and made it seem like at any time, you know, China can shoot uh, someone in the head who criticizes China, or they could like kill John Cena with a microwave blast if he doesn't speak good enough Mandarin or whatever the fuck the fucking new narrative will become. And, you know, I've talked about the National Academy of Sciences before. They were the group that the FBI hired to verify their DNA results in the Amerithrax case, which the NAS, National Academy of Sciences, said, nope, uh, you did a shitty job here. This is not usable evidence. They actually said, came out and said that they, these results, and I don't know if they're referring to the MRI imaging or not, were most likely caused by directed pulsed radio energy, radio frequency energy. And a microwave, just so you understand, 
it's part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And the electromagnetic spectrum uh, contains everything from gamma rays, x-rays, visible light, ultraviolet, uh, infrared radiation, radio waves, and microwaves. Now, they're claiming that this, I, I'm not exactly sure which frequency spectrum they're claiming, but it does seem like they're claiming somewhere in the neighborhood of, I guess, between 100 kilohertz and 100 gigahertz. Now, I'm not smart enough to know if, how this works, but if you had some kind of radio wave generator oscillator and you're able to just keep cranking it, I'm not actually sure what it would do to a human brain. And I know that there's, this is stuff that the you know, U.S. government has experimented with long, long back in the day. There's documentation of this, of pointing some kind of device, electromagnetic device over someone's head and basically blasting them with high frequencies to see what would happen. So technically speaking, I'm, I mean, you could probably do something in a direct way like that. I just don't understand how you could beam something into somebody from a distance like this, because this is sort of what they're alleging. Not only is it, you know, somewhat cartoon land to think of microwaving someone's brain or scrambling it up or causing some kind of brain damage with some kind of high frequency, you know, radio spectrum, microwave spectrum blast electromagnetically into their skull. That's one thing. And that's hard to imagine that being possible, even though it probably is. But it's another thing to imagine somehow these people being like targeted while sleeping inside their homes. How is that even happening? How is that even possible? I mean, what distance is this being done? I'm just saying under the assumption that it's real, I, I tend to think that this might actually be really happening. I just don't think that it, the CIA is getting attacked by a foreign adversary. In fact, I would be more likely to believe that the CIA, or it might be even be attacking itself. This might be some kind of, you know, way to cover up maybe a government exposure to radiation or something that gave a bunch of people severe head trauma or brain damage and to, you know, create a believable cover story for it. You know, who the fuck knows what happened? Pivoting to China. Oh, for real, though, we're going to talk about China because. In the last episode I recorded with Abby, we didn't get a chance to talk about this recent poll, which is quite frightening, I think. Um, it was conducted by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and I don't know how legit this is as a polling agency. It sounds to me like a think tank. So like most polls, I would imagine that there's some truth in here that we need to be concerned about. And what is this poll? Well, it was a poll conducted in August 2021, that concluded, for the first time, half of Americans favor def defending Taiwan if China invades. Tensions between Beijing and Taipei are running high. Chinese intimidation of Taiwan has increased since 2016, demonstrated by naval drills in the Taiwan Strait, incursions into Taiwanese airspace, and economic coercion targeted at Taiwanese industries. In turn, the United States has sold advanced weapons to Taiwan and normalized U.S. warship transits nearby. While past administrations have not made formal commitments to defend Taiwan, the just-completed 2021 Chicago Council survey finds that for the first time, a slim majority of Americans now favor sending U.S. troops to defend Taiwan 
if China invades. Okay, now let's unpack this a little bit. First of all, I love the statement, while past administrations have not made formal commitments to defend Taiwan. So let's examine that statement. Okay, what have past administrations done with Taiwan? Well, I'll tell you one thing. They haven't fucking recognized it as a country, which, just stepping back for a second, is actually hilarious when you look at the way that all this stuff we've been talking about, or all the stuff that's in the U.S. press, Western press about this, is rhetorically framed when it comes to Taiwan. If the U.S. hasn't even recognized Taiwan as a country, and not even Trump could come out and say that he thought Taiwan was a country, like, I mean, that was not the Trump administration's official position. They still hadn't committed to that. If that's been the position this whole time, that the U.S. will not recognize Taiwan as a country, then this idea that we have not made formal commitments to defend Taiwan, I mean, it's almost like, well, yeah, of course we haven't, if we haven't confirmed that they're a country or not. I mean, it's pretty amazing. So just getting that out of the way, I guess one of the questions that comes up is, how did this happen for the first time? A slim majority of Americans now favor sending U.S. troops to defend Taiwan of China made. That's different than retaliating against China. This is specifically saying a majority of Americans now favor sending U.S. troops to defend Taiwan of China invades. So how in the fuck did this happen? If CNN and the Biden administration are so in bed with China as the right claims they are, how did this? How did the needle get moved to this extent? Is it because the heroic Epic Times newspaper swooped in and convinced your relatives when they're at the grocery store? And I don't know if you know this already, but Epic Times is sold at grocery stores in the newspaper aisle. And when I say aisle, that's an exaggeration. Most grocery stores don't have an aisle. They just usually have a little rack where they will have Washington Post, USA Today, New York Times, maybe a local paper. But my local grocery store in Oakland, California, the one that I go to, grocery store chain, unfortunately, yes, I go to a chain, has the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, and Epic Times, the fallen gong-funded, right, hyper-right-wing, QAnon, dog-whistling newspaper right next to the other three major papers. And I'm not saying those other three major papers are any good. It's just fascinating how this one now seemingly has this much influence. I mean, but it, well, is it because the Epic Times is now all over the place that the needle moved this much? No, I don't think so. How did the needle move this much? Well, you know the most popular, the highest rated cable show on cable, not just news show, of all the shows that are on television right now in the United States, you know what the most popular show is? It's Tucker Carlson Tonight. And what does Tucker Carlson Tonight say about China? Well, they make it seem like China is about to attack Taiwan and that, in fact, China's already like basically invaded the United States through a secret invasion like the scrolls in Marvel Comics. You know, basically resurrecting the type of Cold War fears that weren't resurrected in full during the neoliberal Russiagate fiasco. This is more like, you know, China has infiltrated all these different as secret you know, aspects of our society kind of thing. And that John Cena has to speak Mandarin because that's how much China, you know, puppeteers us and all of our Hollywood elites that, you know, essentially the deep state is a Chinese CIA globalist 
conglomerate, and that's who controls the poor old United States. The nationalist patriots are trying to take this country back. Sorry, I'm now I'm just going off on a total rant, imitating basically the frame in which these people see the world through. Now, this is interesting. In the same poll, it says that majorities favor U.S. recognition of Taiwan as an independent country. 69% of the people polled recognize, want the U.S. to recognize Taiwan as an independent country. Only 69% of the people polled. That's fascinating. So that's still a, rel- I mean, it's not that high of a number. Less than 70% of Americans want or favor the U.S. recognizing Taiwan. That's interesting. When asked about a potential range of scenarios, just over half of Americans, 52%, favor using U.S. troops to defend if China were to invade the island. This is the highest level ever recorded in the council's surveys dating back to 1982 when the question was first asked. Republicans are more likely to support sending U.S. troops to Taiwan's defense, 60%, than Democrats or independents. Democrats are 50% in favor and independence 49%. So the most rational of the three groups here are independence. But I guess that's not a surprise that 60% of Republicans are more likely to send US troops to Taiwan's defense. I mean Tucker Carlson, you know, is the most popular program and most conservatives who watch TV and TV news probably make sure to watch his show every night, I would imagine. TV viewers do. So yeah, that makes sense. I would I'm actually surprised it's not higher. So that's, I guess, heartening that it's not like 80% of Republicans want us to send U.S. troops to defend Taiwan if it's invaded by China. But I think what's probably more alarming is that 50% of Democrats are okay with us sending U.S. troops. I mean, it's only 10% less than Republicans. That's really shocking. How did all of them get into that mind space? And why is it even, why is it even this frame? I mean, yeah, this council may be asked this question every time they do a survey every year. That makes sense if that's what they do, if they ask this theoretical question. But the idea of China invading Taiwan now, it does seem like it's more in the popular zeitgeist and like it's just talked about more. You hear a lot of people talking about this. Why now, Why are they all talking about this now? Well, I think it's for a few reasons. It's for some obvious reasons. COVID-19 and all these forces conglomerating to try to rhetorically amp up things against China and the U.S., which is very artificially driven. Most Americans who are talking about being scared of China, they're just repeating talking points. You know, even if you go to a bar, a bar that serves $15 cocktails, let's hope you don't go to a bar like that, but let's say you are in one, and there's a a group of finance guys, and you overhear them talking about China. Do you think because those guys are in finance and have some kind of you know, maybe more nuanced view of this, that they would have an interesting take on China? No. Chances are they're just going to be repeating the same talking points you've heard on Epic Times. I mean, literally, I've heard it myself. I will admit I've been in a bar with $15 cocktails and I have experienced this firsthand. Just sat for a good five to 10 minutes and listened to a group of guys all repeating things that sounded like they'd just been reading Epic Times or listening to War Room Pandemic with Steve Bannon. And I'm actually going to get to Steve Bannon in a second. But first, you know, where is this coming from now? Well, remember how we were talking about the idea of hypersonic missiles in regards to what are these UFOs? What are these UAPs? Is this sort of being thrown out here now to sort of validate a hypersonic arms race? You know, 
supersonic weapons that break the sound barrier? How much faster do they go than the sound barrier? Well, apparently there's this idea of concocting hypersonic missiles that can go five to 10 times faster than the speed of sound. I mean, I don't even understand that's possible, but these are things that are being talked about by the military industrial complex and companies like Raytheon. And these places have been trying to figure these things out for years in R&D. But now, allegedly, China tests a hypersonic missile. You know, they beat us to the punch. You know, from foreign times, China tests new space capability with hypersonic missile. Launched in August of nuclear-capable rocket that circled the globe took U.S. intelligence by surprise. I mean, took, took us by surprise? Come on, that's obviously fucking bullshit. Of course it didn't take us by surprise. Total fucking bullshit. Abby and I have been talking about how it seems like hypersonic missile fear-mongering is going to be the next thing. So how could this have taken U.S. intelligence by surprise that China might launch something like this? And was it even really a hypersonic missile? Well, the Daily Mail says, Revealed, China has tested TWO hypersonic orbital nukes capable of breaching missile defenses. As panicked analysts say, it defies the laws of physics. It is unlike any weapon the U.S. has. I mean, again, it just sounds like total, it almost sounds like science fiction fear-mongering. So their missiles defy the laws of physics and we're just totally outmatched. Just suddenly, we're fucked. And then here's like how the right wing, you know, deals with this kind of shit. This is the layers of stupidity they're operating at. You know, and here's someone named Christina Wong. I don't even know who the fuck she is. I guess she's from Breitbart. She's got 70,000 followers. Her tweet says, China, China, colon, launches nuclear-capable hypersonic missile. Us, colon, International Pronouns Day. We share why many people list pronouns on their email and social media profiles. So she's making this juxtaposition like, look at how fucking woke acting like the U.S. State Department is, and they got caught with their pants down with this China hypersonic missile, and we're fucking, you know, they care about our pronouns. It's like, all this shit's fake. You're fake. You're fucking phony, Christina Wong. You fake motherfucker. I don't believe China launched a true hypersonic missile that defies the laws of physics and it's something that we're outmatched by. And you know what? I also don't believe the Department of State gives a shit about pronouns or trans people. All these things are fake. They're fucking fake. Okay? It's all, fa it's all weaponized fake, you know, layers of propaganda that we're dealing with in this one tweet. But anyways, it does seem like this hypersonic missile fear-mongering, and now this idea that China is about to overtake our GDP, you know, is really scaring the shit out of people. And I'm just shocked that 50% of Democrats want to send U.S. troops to defend Taiwan. I mean, that's pretty shocking. And what's Biden's response to this? Um, it doesn't seem like there's much coming from the White House in terms of really amping this up, except Biden was asked and he rhetorically responded that, yes, he would defend Taiwan if China attacked. And that was a really shocking statement. And then his administration kind of backpedaled from it a little bit. So they still seem to be skating this fine line, you know, this idea that Biden's in bed with China or whatever, that even Glenn Greenwald will repeat now is obvious fucking BS. But there is sort of a weird tug of war happening between the Biden administration and China where there does seem to be, I mean, there's just so much pressure trying to get the U.S. to be at an adversarial pivot towards China. But what's up with the Committee on the Present Danger, the think tank that Media Roots talked about last year? 
the resurrected neoconservative think tank that sort of marked that there was an op happening. On the surface, it seemed like people like Steve Bannon hated the neocons. He talks about the neocons all the time. He even raked Errol Morris over the coals in his movie American Dharma, where Errol Morris, you know, basically sits down and does like a Robert McNamara style interview with Steve Bannon, maybe a little too soon since, you know, the Trump era really hadn't run its course or, you know, we'd only been a couple of years out from it. But maybe that was part of what was so interesting about it is he captured this moment in time where Steve Bannon was sort of at his peak still. Now, Steve Bannon seems to have fallen from grace a little bit, but his confidence still seems to be the same. You know, circumstantially, he seems really fucked right now. But confident level, he seems like the same old Steve Bannon. But basically what I'm saying is Steve Bannon rakes Errol Morris over the coals in that documentary and makes fun of him when Errol Morris admits that he voted for Hillary Clinton because he was scared of Trump and him. He was scared of Bannon. And Bannon's like, what? He voted for the warmonger? Man, the guy who made Fog of War? Man, you voted for the warmonger? Oh, man, I'm so disappointed. And that, that was Bannon's reaction in the movie. Now, what's so brilliant about that is it seems genuine. It seems like Bannon really does have this line where, you know, like Hillary's this warmonger neocon and that his sort of arm or flank or his sector of conservatism is sort of anti-war, anti-neoconservative. That's what he claims to be. Well, Bannon is the guy who actually resurrected the Committee on the Present Danger neoconservative think tank that, you know, opened and shut down multiple times throughout its history and would be resurrected at different times. It would be re- resurrected for pressing events. So it got resurrected for the, the Iraq War, the War on Terror, got resurrected during the Cold War with the Soviet Union, and Bannon actually resurrected it this time for China. So now it's called the Committee on the Present Danger China. Now, why is this so weird? Well, that doesn't mean Bannon's a neocon. Well, I'm not saying Bannon is a classic neocon or that he's a Trotskyite and he's secretly having you know dinners with Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol. In fact, I would say that that frame, that the idea that neocons are only these Trotskyites that are you know directly in line with Bill or Irving Kristol is sort of a really overly narrow frame to look at this through that has confined our ability to really talk about what's fucking happening. And I do think there's sort of this strain of libertarianism rhetoric I notice where it does seem like a lot of libertarians like to make it seem like the neocons are just commies, secret Trotskyites. Well, the reality is if you look at PNAC and the neocon lineage and the Reaganite neocons, some of them are just straight up far right hawks. It was Dick Cheney a Trotskyite? Well, we used to have no problem calling him a neocon. So what happened? Why is he all of a sudden not a neocon? Because if we confine the definition just to be these Trotskyite, Crystallite, Strassian neocons only, then who are all these other people? Oh, are they just hawks? John Bolton is just a hawk? I don't think so. And I'm, I'm the, I don't go along with that narrowing of the frame. I think that that's actually uh, kind of been inserted in there to distract us. And I know that libertarians wouldn't like to admit that some of these so-called conservatives that aren't Trotskyites are just as bad as neocons or should be called neocons. I know they probably that probably makes them uncomfortable, but someone like Michael Ledeen or someone like John Bolton or James Woolsey, they're neocons. Maybe they're not the Trotskyites, but they're still neocons. So what am I really trying to say here? Is that Bannon, you know, linked up with these 
these types of neocons. People in the Committee on the Present Danger include James Woolsey, former CIA director, and the guy who helped Paul Wolfowitz try to devise some kind of bullshit connection between Saddam Hussein and the 2001 anthrax attacks. William J. Bennett, guy behind the Department of Education in the Reagan era, who also was behind many of the PNAC documents. Who else is on the Committee on the Present Danger? Well, one of the most notorious Islamophobic neoconservatives who was part of PNAC of all time, Frank Gaffney. Well, I guess, is he not a neocon? Gordon Chang is also part of the Committee on the Present Danger. He seems singularly fixated on regime change in China. He doesn't seem like he's a classic neocon. Actually, he wasn't part of PNAC either, but pretty much the same thing. The overall point to this rant is that Steve Bannon is duplicitous, to say the least, about his relationship to the neocons. He single-handedly seemed like he helped resurrect a think tank, and I don't know who's funding it, but if you look at neocon J. Michael Waller's timeline on Twitter, or if you look into who J. Michael Waller is, you get some indication that he jumped ship from the Committee on the Present Danger China think tank once he felt that Steve Bannon had been corrupted by a Chinese billionaire, a guy who goes by the name Guo Wangi, or Miles Guo who is a fugitive from the Chinese government for apparently rape and fraud and some other crimes. And this Chinese billionaire uh, lives on a mega yacht that sometimes goes into international waters and back to different aspects or different areas of the U.S. coastline. Now, the previous time Steve Bannon was arrested was on, Miles, on, the, on the mega yacht of Miles Guo a yacht that is worth something like $20 million, apparently. Now, who is this guy, Miles Guo? Well, it seems like Miles Guo himself might be duplicitous as well because he funds all these seemingly anti-China operations, you know, anti-the CCP. He talks about being anti-the CCP. But at the same time, he does a lot of other strange things, like he'll fund armies of people to go beat up Chinese dissidents. Journalists who are Chinese dissidents, but also journalists who dig up dirt on Miles Guo, he'll send activists to go basically beat them up and assault them. Miles Guo also seems like he's willing to make a deal with China. Like he doesn't want to be a fugitive from China. So because he has that frame, because he has that mindset, that means that he could be playing some kind of double game. So this neocon J. Michael Waller seems to believe that Steve Bannon has been corrupted by potentially Chinese government money and influence, even though that's not what I believe. This is what this neocon thinks, essentially. So it's sort of weird that this guy, Miles Guo, who's been funding Steve Bannon, some believe to the tune of up to a million dollars or more a year, it's weird to think that he's, it's weird to think that his money might be in this think tank that got all these neocon intellectuals, these far-right hawks who are anti-China, all amped up together in one organization. It'd be weird if his money was funding that. But anyways, the reason why I'm talking about Steve Bannon and Miles Guo is because the last time Bannon was arrested was on the mega yacht of this Chinese billionaire, Miles Guo. Now, Bannon and Guo have a media venture that is still being investigated by the SEC. But what happened a couple days ago was Steve Bannon surrendered to an indictment and an arrest warrant 
for a subpoena, for refusing to appear basically before Congress for a subpoena during these January 6th commissions, I think. Now, Bannon actually turned himself in. Uh, for some reason, he wasn't willing to go to the subpoena, but he turned himself in. And while he went to the courthouse and right before he walked in, he had a little cadre of, of right-wing media people there following him. And he made sure to tell the cameras that were there uh, to tune in today. He's talking about the day he was arrested to his show, War Room Pandemic. And then he proceeded to actually just give out the guest list for that day of his show, War Room Pandemic, outside the courthouse. So basically, right before he gets into the courthouse to surrender, he gives a plug to his show. And he says that this is all part of a political witch hunt. It's the same thing that's been going on, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't mention the deep state. Because Bannon doesn't like to talk about the deep state in the way other right wingers do, but of course, all the like you know people on the right, they thought and spun this as some kind of deep state plot against Steve Bannon, of course, and this sort of came right off the heels of James O'Keefe, the guy behind Project Veritas, his home being raided by the FBI, and again, this is being spun by right media as a deep state plot against the right. Or you have to see things, I think, in a really overly simplistic way to believe that the FBI is somehow like a Democrat-controlled entity. Yeah, Biden is in control of the White House right now. But the FBI, I mean, traditionally actually has been more right-wing. The idea that the FBI you know, is acting on behalf of some deep state apparatus to take down right media, and that's why James O'Keefe and Steve Bannon are going down right now, even though both of them might be totally fine. I mean, I think that's a ludicrous assumption to make. And there is something strange here, though, with the James O'Keefe raid that goes back to what seems to be a stolen Ashley Biden diary. And this Ashley Biden diary uh, is pretty graphic, pretty intimate, was apparently written when she was in recovery. So it makes it even more, I think, private. You know, when she was going through a really difficult time in her life, maybe kind of asked to do diary work as part of her therapy or recovery process. But what happened was um, this leaked online, and I guess Ashley Biden reported a, a break-in to her house, a burglary, and that she reported one of the missing items was her diary. And somehow Project Veritas didn't, agreed to buy this story. Someone tried to bring them the diary and tell them, hey, we want you to run this. This is a really juicy story. And apparently they did not. So it's unclear why the FBI is searching James O'Keefe's property. But it seems like they believe that Project Veritas has some information to lead to the person who burglarized Ashley Biden. Was this diary stolen in a burglary or not? I don't know. But that appears to be how this investigation started and why James O'Keefe got raided. Now, when that happened, uh, some things, internal things about Project Veritas started to leak in the media. And all these people, of course, rushed to the conclusion that the FBI and the deep state was leaking all these things to make James O'Keefe look bad. Maybe that's what's happening. Maybe the FBI is leaking things on Project Veritas. But it could also be people inside Project Veritas trying to throw gas on the fire. Could be people on the inside who are trying to take down James O'Keefe. 
So all these assumptions, I think, just keep going because it's sort of like this soft QAnon snowball. And Russiagate has sort of given this impression that, you know, there's this deep state monolith that was versus Trump and everybody that's pro-Trump. That's just not the way that I see things. And I think that it's a lot more nuanced than that. I do think that there's a real thing such as the deep state. But I think it's, um, it's factionalized. It's fragmented. There are people in all these different organizations who are maybe in power who are running their own secret agendas. Some of them may be more right-wing. Some of them may be more left-wing. But I think you just have to be really careful just making all these assumptions that these things are happening to James O'Keefe or Bannon because the deep state is, you know, gunning for them. And, you know, here's a problem I already see forming is that people are already conflating this with Julian Assange. I saw someone who seemed like they were, you know, not didn't have a huge following on Twitter. Uh, they had Team Assange in their handle. They had another hashtag saying Clovers for Assange in their handle. And their tweet was, we know where this leads. And they're commenting on the uh, Project Veritas James O'Keefe raid. We know where this leads. It took the U.S. and CIA nine years to illegally imprison a journalist for the first time. I guess they're talking about Assange. And we've been warning you this was coming. Free Assange. Free Veritas. So as you can see, there's sort of a weird track here where people are conflating Assange's predicament, which is very real, with what's happening with James O'Keefe. So it's really, I think, giving him a lot more credibility than he deserves, to say the fucking least. But here's another strange thing about all this. Now, whether all these far-right outlets thought that this diary was stolen or not is unclear, but here's one thing that is clear, is that there was a sleazy website called The National File that actually ran the full, uncensored Ashley Biden diary fully leaked as a PDF, as a viewable, you know, live website over a year ago. And somehow this was not picked up by OAN. This was not picked up by the Gateway Pundit. It wasn't even picked up by War Room Pandemic. I don't even remember seeing it on Twitter or Reddit or any of these more right-wing, you know, circles. So that's a really strange thing that they, these are all the same places that ran with the uh, pictures of Hunter Biden, you know, sex pictures of him maybe with the dick and face blurred out on some of them, but they still ran them. So why did they draw a line with not running with the Ashley Biden diary? Well, the New York Times ran this story a couple weeks ago saying that Project Veritas and James O'Keefe were being raided, and it was over this diary. Now, I guess up until that point, a lot of people were under the impression that the diary might have been fake. Well, I don't understand how the right-wing media could use that excuse because the diary, they could hire a handwriting person to match her handwriting with the handwriting in the diary. For some reason, they didn't run with this. And even Lauren Boebert, the you know, far-right, QAnon dog-whistling politician, she even started to post pages from the diary after this New York Times story confirmed that there was a real diary out there somewhere. She started to post pages from it, pages insinuating that Joe Biden was a pedophile. And one of the page entries in the diary, Ashley Biden talks about how she does remember naked showers with dad when she was a kid. And she sort of wonders in the same two-page section if she had been molested as a kid because she was really hypersexual as a kid. This is all very intimate stuff she's talking about. And yeah, it is weird that Joe Biden would have taken naked showers with his daughter. But in those pages, there's nothing specifically saying that she was molested by Joe Biden. 
but there's enough there where that's you know you can go straight Pizzagate with that. You can insinuate that it's very easy to look how creepy Joe Biden is with women and and especially young girls. I mean the way he touches them in some of those videos. I mean it is really uh, you you can make a lot of insinuations there. So why did the right media not run with this? Why did only a website called the National File run with this whole diary a year ago? But they didn't. Well, did they think it was stolen and it was too hot? Is that why they didn't run with it? Well, if it's already online, can't they just reference it? Like the national file already had the whole thing posted. What was the reason they didn't even reference it like that? That's really curious to me. And I'm a little bit confused about exactly what's going on here. And I do wonder if either they thought it was fake or they knew maybe it was stolen or if this was a bridge too far for them to actually post even the president's child's intimate private diary, if that was an ethical line. That seems less likely to me that they would draw an ethical line there. It not being stolen would just be them, you know, worrying that they would bring liability on themselves. They would be complicit in a crime. That might make sense. But an ethical line? No, they posted some of the most graphic Hunter Biden pictures. I mean, some of these websites posted pictures of the M&M stacked on Hunter Biden's dick, like I said, just blurring out his face and his, you know, part of his dick. So, I don't know. I'm confused. Um, exactly what happened here. But it is, I mean, look, I don't have any empathy really for anybody in these royal families, so to speak, the Biden family. But it is sort of weird to get into territory where it's politically okay to leak someone's really intimate private diary where they're talking, where they're just wondering aloud in a private diary where they didn't think anyone else is probably going to read, wondering if they'd been molested as they were a kid. I mean, that's pretty private stuff. So I don't really know what that does for or against Joe Biden, other than if you're already the a type of person to believe that the Democrats are extra pedoe or that you know pedophilia is something that only exists among Democrats. Um, if, there's a lot of weird fucking people who believe that pedophilia is a partisan thing. If you're already oriented in that frame, then yeah, this would just help amp that up. You know, the naked shower thing alone is like, okay, that's it. Joe Biden, creepy Joe, he molested her. You know, that's that's the end of that. So I tend to be a little bit more, you know, like we don't know what that means other than, yeah, that is in a fucking inappropriate. You know, it, she also says that she heard her parents having loud sex all the time when she was a kid. That also seems inappropriate. I mean, look, I just feel maybe bad for the th concept of her having her diary leaked. I don't feel bad for the Biden family. I mean, there's so much weird dirt on, uh, about them out there already, just Hunter alone, that like, it is strange how it doesn't, hasn't done more damage. And I don't know, you know, is the right saving something else they have from Hunter Biden's laptop? Like, did they leak everything? Why didn't they just dump all of that? So I guess I'm just left a little baffled. But what else did I want to talk about on this episode? Well, I started talking a little bit about COVID and how it does seem like a lot of the opposition to the vaccines unfortunately, is controlled opposition, even though I'm completely understanding of why someone would take such a strong anti-vaccine stance. It seems like that energy has been mostly captured by basically political agitprop groups who have controlled it. So I brought up Ivermectin and, you know, Brett Weinstein, who is someone who's come up on this podcast before as a suspicious character and all this sort of intellectual dark web shenanigans. Um, he was really pushing hard for ivermectin for a while. And he sort of brought that into a realm of dialogue that 
I thought was strange, why he became sort of the mascot for fighting really hard for people to have this debate about ivermectin, specifically ivermectin, not what are the treatment. See, to me, it would make sense organically if it was like, hold on a second, instead of just all vaccine-focused stuff, now I'm just illustrating an example here, instead of just all vaccine-focused stuff, let's talk about all the treatment options that are effective and not unreachable for the general public. What are all of them? And let's assess all of them and weigh them against this idea of everyone needs to get a vaccine. Instead of Brett Weinstein doing that and making that his primary like argument, he, for some reason, and a lot of people who followed along with him, made it all about ivermectin. Just like Trump and some of his people and you know the right media back when Trump was in office made it all about hydroxychloroquine. That's odd to me. And I think you should find it odd too. You know, I think it's odd why it's not more just a general discussion trying to assess all the different potential treatment options or prophylactic options. But why did I bring up Brett Weinstein and circle back to ivermectin, which is honestly one of the most annoying discussions I've encountered in politics recently, how much energy that took up. And the fact that like Matt Taibbi and people went to bat for Brett Weinstein and elevated him to this level, it just was fucking ridiculous. Because it, 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 if it's all about the premise, was, which I'm talking about, that it's about let's assess the treatment options versus the vaccine, then it just got totally overshadowed with it's all about fucking Brett Weinstein. And Ivermectin is like, fuck that. Something weird and it's something is definitely not right with that. It's definitely some kind of controlled opposition jumping into the void and capturing the energy thing. And I, I really, you know, maybe it sounds paranoid to people, but I really think it's just as bad as CNN. I really do. In some ways, it's worse because you think you're woke or you think you're smart for subscribing to this alternate point of view that goes against the mainstream. And there's a righteousness to that when in reality, like that's the that's how you're being fooled. You know, a lot of people who watch CNN don't think of themselves as being righteous. They just suck it up like a sponge and they repeat it. Well, the other thing, the other side is, you know, acting like they're really righteous. They know exactly what's going on and they understand everything, but they don't. And that's part of the problem that I was talking about earlier when I went off on my COVID vaccine rant. But, you know, Whitney Webb and I have gone back and forth for a long time on this idea of who is the intellectual dark web? What is it? Was it just merely Barry Weiss writing an editorial in, I think, the New York Times and sort of characterizing this group of people that Joe Rogan had on his show, frankly? Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, Ben Shapiro, for some reason, was included in that originally. Dave Rubin, for some reason, was included in that article, too. I mean, was, it, was that all it was? Or was it, is it actually some kind of op? Because these people seem to have an incredible, almost outsized amount of influence that just does not match up with the ideas they're putting out. Their ideas are simply not interesting enough. And not compelling enough. And frankly, they're just not that captivating to match up with their level of viral spread on social media, in the dialogue, how they seem to be moving the needle in a lot of aspects of the dialogue, like how Brett Weinstein was getting all these people to talk about ivermectin. It seems outsized. It doesn't match up with what they're really spewing. And I, what I'm saying is something's funny about it, that a lot of these people are part of some kind of Peter Thiel, you know, political op of some kind that they're being funded and propped up by, at the very least, by Peter Thiel cutout organizations. 
And it's a theory that I've increasingly believed over time without a whole lot of evidence, frankly, except for the fact that Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein's brother, is a high up executive at Teal Capital. I mean, that alone made me think, well, that's odd. You know, either this is just really in your face, Peter Thiel, you know, trying to change the political dialogue using one of his surrogates, or it's just a coincidence, or it's, you know, it, it, I don't, it just seemed weird that it's almost like they're trying to normalize, oh, here's, here's my brother, Eric Weinstein, and oh, by the way, he works for Teal Capital, and he knows Epstein and interact with him a bunch, but he's actually on our side, he's anti-establishment, he's part of the intellectual dark web. I mean, that was just a weird thing that all of a sudden he jumped onto the scene. But the Peter Thiel connection with Eric Weinstein was always really odd to me. And Eric Weinstein, you know, really only started to address it recently. And he's like, oh, well, just because I work for so-and-so, does that mean they dictate what I believe and blah, blah, blah? It's like, well, you know, you're not really addressing the, the core issue that's happening here where it does seem like Peter Thiel, who, by the way, is part of the Bilderberg Steering Committee, as part of some kind of funded controlled opposition network, you know, that's creating sort of this fake appearance of a libertarian renegade spirit in Silicon Valley or, or, or the world, larger world of whatever Silicon Valley touches. But in reality, we've known that Peter Thiel is the same guy who shut down Gawker, death by a thousand cuts, funding all these different lawsuits, specifically the whole Hogan lawsuit to just basically drive it bankrupt. He was behind that, and it was apparently revenge for them outing him as being gay. And then we already know Peter Thiel's, one of his main companies is Palantir, named after one of Sauron's basically evil magical objects in Lord of the Rings that's an all-seeing eye. Palantir is sort of like a surveillance data mining, data collection outfit that has worked with and has done defense contracting work for intelligence agencies in the U.S., like the CIA. So we're supposed to believe that this guy is some kind of renegade. And it does seem like, you know, the intellectual dark web, even though Eric Weinstein blatantly worked for Teal Capital, it did seem like it was still like hidden hand. Like Whitney Webb and I would talk about this and we'd be like, yeah, it's too bad. You know, at least I would be like, yeah, it's too bad. We can't prove this more. It's more like we, we can feel and know that this is probably happening that he has his hand in this. This is the same guy who funded Mencius Moldbug and a lot of other alt-right groups back when that was hot. So it did make sense why he'd be ahead of the curve in funding this sort of intellectual dark web mentality, you know, this group of people. Well, it turns out that it just got and amped up. It went to fucking 11, like instantly. All of a sudden, this guy drops onto the scene who looks like a character straight out of a late 90s, early 2000s CGI movie like Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. His name is Blake Masters. He's the COO of Teal Capital. And he is now running for the Senate in Arizona. And seems like he's basically just completely backed by Peter Thiel. He's all over the place like horse shit now. He's being completely artificially signal boosted all over social media. And not just in social media, but like forced into the dialogue. Like, all of a sudden, Glenn Greenwald is like, yeah, check this motherfucker out. He's pretty sick, dude. Check him. It's like, what in the fuck is happening, Glenn Greenwald? Like, you're talking about some random asshole who's obviously just like a fucking puppet, meat suit, appendage of Peter Thiel, where Peter Thiel is cranking up the Thiel ops now to just be blatant, and you're just promoting this guy. And then you have J.D. Vance this other Senate candidate for Ohio who has almost 200,000 followers on Twitter who just 
comes out of nowhere and everything he just says on Twitter is just totally fucking fake. But who is this guy, Blake Masters? This fucking weird CGI face looking guy that's the COO of Teal Capital who's running for Arizona Senate. Well, he's also playing this little rhetorical double game. He's actually having a fight right now with David Frum on Twitter calling him a warmonger. And David Frum called him out for having violent rhetoric for basically doing this ridiculous commercial where Blake Masters is walking around with an assault machine gun or rifle saying, this is not made for duck hunting. This is made to protect your family. Da, 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 da. And then he goes on to say that what they did in Afghanistan when they took the guns, that's how the Taliban took over and all this shit. So he's basically mixing in like Alex Jones rhetoric, you know, sort of Second Amendment uh, libertarian pro-gun stuff at the same time. And he's funded by Peter Thiel. He's literally the COO of this fucking company, for Christ's sake. So David Frum calls him out on Twitter and then Blake Masters responds and says, I don't think the chief propagandist of the Iraq war gets to lecture me about espousing violence. And it's like, dude, I mean, this is, you're a really sus motherfucker to think that you're actually anti-war or something. I mean, I guess people, the thing is people buy into this shit. You just have to say you're against the Iraq war. Just like Trump said he was against the Iraq war, even though if you actually listen back to his original statements about the Iraq war, he was asked by Howard Stern early on if he supported the Iraq war and Trump, you know, wasn't a strong supporter, but he said, yeah, I guess I support it. He had a lukewarm support of it. So, you know, he never talks about that. All these people are rebranding. It's trendy now. I'm going to hammer away at this point forever to get you to understand that this is all fake. And here's how also fashy someone like Blake Masters sounds. He says, I have faith that justice will prevail and Kyle Rittenhouse will be acquitted. If he is not, I will donate and raise as much money as necessary to support his appeals. I mean, to me, that almost just sounds like Blake Masters is running some kind of Peter Thiel strategy of tension political op for God knows what reason. And he's just saying that people like Teal, that these oligarchs like Teal will just fund people who basically bring guns to a protest looking to kill people. That seems like a weird fascist escalation. So why are billionaires doing this? Is my question. Peter Thiel literally drinks baby blood. I mean, child's blood. Sorry, not literal infant blood. So I, I just don't like, you got to understand that this is a really actually scary situation that they're trying to ratchet things up seemingly. Seems like they're trying to ratchet up sort of like a civil war mentality, but why is the question. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that William Casey, a Reagan-era CIA director, is pushing this fake right populism. Maybe it has something to do with stuff like that. I don't know. You tell me. And these guys aren't necessarily intellectual dark web, but they're kind of like, they're kind of like bringing back this sort of like, we're classical liberals. But also sort of like fashy too. Like we're classical liberals, but we're also like kind of fascist. And fucking check our shit out, dudes. And it's like, what is this fucking, what is this shit? This is really weird. And I mean, you can just see it being blasted in your face. And then, you know, you have people like Christopher F. Rufo. You know, every time we see one of these brave rising stars in conservatism like Christopher F. Rufo, you know, one of these populists that blasts onto the scene that Greenwald wants us to pay attention to, they're either funded by Peter Thiel or they're part of one of these three think tanks, Claremont Institute, Manhattan Institute, or the Hudson Institute. Who is Christopher F. Rufo? Who the fuck is this guy? 
I mean, I just heard of him actually recently from Glenn Greenwald, who was hyping him up and saying he was great. So I looked into him just out of curiosity. And here's some things that Rufo recently said on Twitter. Um, his main like pinned tweet says he is fighting against critical race theory through investigative reporting, policy advocacy, and legal warfare. And then he has this gigantic thread on his Twitter feed all about how he did an exclusive investigative story getting internal documents exposing Lockheed Martin. So at first you're thinking, wow, this guy sounds like he's really going after the defense contractors. And then you go to another one of his tweets and it says, it's time to clean house in America, remove the attorney general, lay siege to the universities, abolish the teachers unions and overturn the school boards. Okay, so you're like, wait, that sounds a little bit fashy. What's, what's that about? And then when you actually look into what his Lockheed Martin expose is, it looks like one of his biggest things that he's accomplished, like the thing that he's most known for is this expose of Lockheed Martin. It's all about exposing their, quote, three-day white male re-education camp. Excuse me? So he's basically writing this investigative report called The Woke Industrial Complex, and his problem with Lockheed Martin's company policies is not that they murder millions of people and are responsible for the deaths of millions of people all around the world pretty much yearly uh he's mad that they're i guess pushing woke teachings on their employees some weird faction of the elites is taking advantage of this situation where some aspect of sort of the liberal monolith and how extreme they've become has created such a reaction that they've created this off-ramp. And when I say they, I mean this other faction of elites, this small group of elites, just as evil as the elites you claim to hate, have managed to create an attractive off-ramp for people sick of uh, you know, this so-called establishment dogmatic thought. The problem is they've tricked you into thinking that they aren't part of the establishment also, when in reality they're just as slimy as this establishment that they're capturing your anti-energy against they're pretty much like a spider web that's catching all these flies that are flying in the opposite direction from this so-called liberal establishment but what's fascinating is like i was saying all these people you know that are these hyped up seemingly artificial signal boosted because i can't prove it 100 percent that they're being artificially signal boosted but it's always this group of people who are part of just these three think tanks or directly connected to or funded by Peter Thiel in some way. So when you really look at that, that's a fact, what I'm saying. I mean, really look at that. You know that something fishy is going on, but I'll make you understand how this is even more sus if you're still not convinced. What is the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research that Christopher F. Rufo is part of, where he's seemingly railing against the establishment and saying we need to abolish all these things? Well, the Manhattan Institute was actually founded by two men. Anthony Fisher, you might not have heard of before. He's a British oligarch of sorts. And a man named William J. Casey. And you've probably heard of this man before because who is he? Well, he was the insanely neoconservative CIA director from 1981 and 1987 into the Reagan era. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? That this is, we're supposed to think that this is an anti-establishment think tank. 
I mean, it's kind of disgusting, actually, that people, anybody is falling for this. This think tank also spawned an offshoot think tank called the Center for Tactical Counterterrorism in the wake of 9-11. And they actually would directly help other countries work with basically retired or current NYPD. They worked with the NYPD to help train other countries' governments in counterterrorism. Sounding a little bit spookish, other than the fact that William fucking Casey co-founded this? Well, good, because it should. The Institute also enjoyed close ties to the administration of New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, says Wikipedia. So it's just really fucked up. They were supposed to sit back and be like, oh yeah, these places, totally legit anti-establishment. Oh yeah, that post-leftist who says really edgy shit on Twitter all the time, you know, who seems legit, uh, even though they're retweeted by the COO of Teal Capital. I mean, it's just so fraudulent what's going on. But yet all these people feel so righteous. And it's like, don't you see that this is all a fucking scam? I mean, some of these people must just be tools and just be riding the wave and not really reflecting on it. But that basically makes you complicit. It's like, once you realize that there's CIA people involved in this, William J. Bennett, one of the top guys in PNAC, is behind the Claremont Institute, which has a cutout organization called American Greatness. The Hudson Institute is a straight-up neocon hornet's nest, and yet all these people come from there. Stop fantasizing about these populist renegades pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, child shit, when they're funded by Peter Thiel and part of these, literally just these three think tanks. Like almost every single time you hear about these people, it's like, oh, they're so they're part of that same network. Great. Is, is there anyone else, like anyone fucking else out there? I guess not. And then you have, of course, Peter Thiel. And Peter Thiel you know, he's actually tried to present himself as anti-war in the Trump era, believe it or not. Even though Palantir, a company that's just an appendage of the CIA and NSA during the Bush era, Palantir's initial startup money was partly based on a CIA hedge fund that gave them a couple of million dollars. So what is Palantir? And who is Peter Thiel? I mean, is he just, is he this libertarian oligarch guy, this renegade in Silicon Valley that he claims to be? Well, obviously not. It's all a fucking scam. Clearly. He has a ridiculous article in Washington Post, and it almost seems like Jeff Bezos kind of gave him a little puff piece in this article. And it says, the headline is, Peter Thiel explains why his company's defense contracts could lead to less war. Tech investor Peter Thiel explained his support for Republican nominee Donald Trump at length to a room of journalists last week. He based part of his rationale on the notion that Washington's insiders currently leading the government have squandered money, time, and human lives on international conflicts and war. Then it talks about how Palantir got an army contract, U.S. army contract of $206 million, and then it got something around $400 million from the Department of Defense. And then it says, Palantir software is used to sift through massive amounts of data to help the military identify enemies' whereabouts, potential attacks, and other battlefield information. If we can pinpoint real security threats, we can defend ourselves without resorting to the crude tactic of invading other countries, Thiel said in a statement sent to the Post. Palantir declined to comment through a representative. William D. Hartung, who oversees the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy, another think tank, said Thiel's outspoken stance on the country's war makes him an anomaly among contractors who tend to voice support for or decline to comment on government initiatives on which they are bidding for business. 
I can't think of anyone who is majorly contracting with the Pentagon who would criticize the Iraq war or our bombing strategy in Syria. He does stand out in that regard, says Hartung. It does verge on the hypocritical, and it's kind of strange as he is speaking out about the war right at the moment he is suing to get involved in more contracts, Hartung said. If his beliefs are that strong, there's plenty of other ways to make money. And then it says, to finish the article, basically the argument is that if the government would use the right technology, and I'm inserting here his technology, then they can minimize the cost and human consequences regardless of what kind of war we're fighting. This is big data. This is not things that blow up and cause collateral damage. Well, I'm sorry, this is an absolutely fucking bullshit spun narrative. What's really happening here is that Peter Thiel is rhetorically ahead of the curve. He saw how Trump rose to power by being this sort of renegade rhetorically and acting like he was anti-Bush and anti-war. And I think Peter Thiel understands intuitively, because he's clever, that that's an ahead-of-the-curve way to be. To act like you're this renegade, people believe it. And what utility does it serve to play this part of the renegade and have people believe it? Well, it gives you an era of credibility. It makes you seem authentic, even if you're not. Most people don't think any of these rich oligarchs are authentic already. So how do you escape that paradigm of already being judged for being a, basically a billionaire oligarch in Silicon Valley? Well, you pretend you're a renegade. So just on a, his own personal level, I mean, this is useful just for his own image, but it also just serves a much larger, much more dangerous purpose, which is just to carve an inroad for some kind of power coup and trick people into thinking that this is actually somehow anti-establishment to claim that you want to collect all this data and basically be an appendage of the CIA to stop war. I mean, Jesus Christ, this sounds like it's absolutely comical, but apparently this is the narrative he's trying to push. And what's the newest thing that he's done? Well, he has Rumble, which is a, a Teal-funded new video hosting platform that seems to be basically where all these sort of so-called renegades and intellectual dark web people and you know, people from the Teal-verse are going to. Glenn Greenwald's channel is now here. Tulsi Gabbard has a channel on Rumble. And Russell Brand just moved to Rumble. What's also hilarious about Rumble is that they just announced that they're moving their headquarters to, guess where? Longboat Key, Florida. The same place where George W. Bush stayed the night uh, before the 9-11 attacks that you'll be familiar with if you've listened to our previous episodes of Media Roots Radio. You know, and here you have J.G. Michael from Parallax Views, which is a fantastic podcast, by the way. I think everyone should check out. His Twitter account, Views Parallax, is an excellent follow on Twitter. He posted a video of Peter Thiel talking about how the globalists are one of the biggest threats to humanity. And, you know, his comment was, not going to lie, it's kind of hilarious to see a billionaire who's a member of the steering committee at the Bilderberg Group giving a speech about the globalist boogeyman. I mean, yeah, what is this duplicitous shit? And I guess the craziest part is people are falling for this. And that's the dangerous part is we need to really, I mean, this is how we need to wake up. They want you to feel woke and righteous about, about fighting the new world order and fighting the elites when you're really just buying into an op. And this is going to be a hard segue. Can't do it any more gracefully than this, but I lost uh, three people that I knew in the ghost ship fire in Oakland where 36 people burned alive in a horrific fire. 
in a warehouse that was run by an irresponsible, complete piece of shit. It was really painful for me not just to lose people in that fire, you know, and to relive the imagery of what it must have been like for them inside that fire. It's It was, you know, running imagery running through my head that I just couldn't stop. Like, p- real PTSD shit. Uh, if that wasn't bad enough, within 48 hours of this horrible fire happening, uh, there was someone who had made a video on YouTube saying that basically my friends had died in a satanic ritualistic sacrifice. And that, in fact, some of them might have actually not even died. That it was a mixture between this is a satanic ritualistic sacrifice conspiracy video, and also this was also a hoax, and that the victims were not real. So I guess their concept was it was sort of like this dark energy ritual like Sandy Hook. I I, I would imagine this would be their same perspective that you know, they would probably say that Sandy Hook was no kids died in it, but that it, um, you know, it was done as like a mass sacrifice ritual. So the public would believe it. And that's like the energy of the ritual. So I guess that was sort of the guy's fucking point of view, but it made me just so upset to see it. And it wasn't just the video. It was like the comments on like the Facebook wall for like people who had died and stuff. Like some people's walls you know, we're still not locked and and people are able to post their wall or post on the event page of the event, you know, where the fire happened. And they were saying things like these people aren't dead. It's fake, you know? So it was really weird and upsetting to have, see that on top of all the real trauma to just see the way that people use it as like a conspiracy football, like immediately online. It just didn't even make sense to me. So I guess that, you know, being said, when this Travis Scott concert, I don't even know what we'd call it, an accident, a horrible tragedy happened a couple of weeks ago, but I guess I didn't realize that there was a whole world of people who seemed to just like totally fall into like the Alex Jones, Mark Dice schema of thinking that this was a mass satanic ritualistic sacrifice of some kind, uh, this Travis Scott tragedy. And just being in the music scene long enough, I can tell you that 99% chance that because most music promoters are pieces of shit in general and really don't care about people's safety, and it's not even just a corporate thing. I mean, clearly, look what happened at the Ghost Ship Fire. There are concert promoters, even at the most underground, cool, you know, scene level that don't care about people's safety. And they just really want to throw shows. So this is not something that's just on the corporate you know, top end, but on the corporate top end, you you do need to spend more money and make sure there's more safety because the larger the event is, the if something goes wrong, the more people could get hurt or die. And that's exactly what happened at this Travis Scott concert where it seemed like they just didn't, they didn't just spend the right amount of money. And it, it was fucking crazy that like Apple Music was streaming this concert where people being carried out on stretchers and ambulances were driving into the audience and the music never stopped. I mean, I don't know what kind of pressure these people thought they were under, but that takes a lot of bootlicking. I'm just following orders, sir, mentality to not, you know, someone, there were several people along the line who could have pulled the plug. Even just the sound guy could have turned the sound down. You know, something. Someone could have turned the house lights on and just ran away to sacrifice their job. I mean, 
it would have been worth it for the amount of people that ended up dying at the show. And it is really disturbing to watch the music continue in the concert, keep going while people are dying and being given CPR. But I mean, just this idea that it was a mass ritual or a satanic ritual, or I mean, it's just like, I, I just blows my mind that there are people really spreading that around. I just don't even know what to say about it. I mean, I saw this guy named Greg Stinchfield, this, you know, that crazy NRA TV guy who also has a Newsmax gig. You might have seen him in that new uh, NRA TV commercial where he destroys the television set with a sledgehammer, kind of like Abby did in Breaking the Set. Well, he, he got on Twitter and said that he believes that China enabled the fentanyl attack on the Travis Scott concert goers. So all those people that died at the Travis Scott concert, he doesn't think it was a mass ritualistic sacrifice on behalf of Satan, but this guy thinks that Chinese government attacked us. I mean, this is how fucking whacked out this shit gets. But I really don't mean to shame anybody out there who believes in Satan. You can believe whatever you want. I personally don't believe in it. And I even think that the concept of Satan is a rather modern one, even in terms of Christianity. Now, I'll just really quickly explain why I take issue with a lot of this. And I think it's partly because of my Freemasonic History of the United States series that I've spent so much time working on. The next episode of the series, which is probably not going to come out for a while, um, probably not until mid-spring, um, it's going to take me a lot of work to compile, but basically there's a new character that's being introduced in episode 9 named Leo Taxil, who I would credit as being the godfather of the satanic panic movement as we know it today. And this guy really ramped up and started in the 1880s in France. Now. It's a really long and detailed and intricate story to unpack exactly how he kickstarted this movement. But basically, what he did was like an eight to 10 years long, long control on the Catholic Church by convincing the Catholic Church and convincing a lot of people that Freemasons worshiped Lucifer and secretly had an inner order that was all about worshiping the devil. And that was the sort of the top of the pyramid, so to speak, in Freemasonry. Now, he managed to convince thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands. In fact, the things that he put out in 1880 still persist today in sort of evangelical conspiracy movement circles. So his troll was so effective that the disinfo that he put out as a prank, in fact, is still out there today. So what's rather odd is that most of the conspiracies about Freemasonry are from Leo Taxel, a hoaxer, a guy who did this as a prank. So ultimately, what does this do? Well, it does a lot of things. It throws a lot of nonsense into the air. It wastes a lot of people's time. It drives people into a frenzy, into a hysteria. But one, I think, important thing that it does effectively, and I don't even think this was Leo Taxel's goal, and maybe it was, maybe part of it was, even though he seemed to make fun of the Freemasons a lot too. Although ultimately this wasn't a troll on the Freemasons, this was a troll on the church because the Pope even bought into his writings. But what does this ultimately do to claim that the Freemasons secretly worship Satan? Well, I think what it does is at large, sort of in a broad general sense, is it makes it more difficult to lodge specific, accurate, and meaningful criticisms against the Freemasons and have people actually listen to them. And for the Freemasons to be hurt by them or actually be affected by them. 
because having so much satanic panic stuff out there flooding the atmosphere kind of in a way creates a shield for Freemasonry because if most of the criticism out there is fake, then they can just kind of, you know, deflect the real criticism away because it's really not that loud compared to the majority of stuff that's happening. So I think that creates an interesting paradigm. And I think that that's what a lot of that satanic panic sort of vibe does in the atmosphere of conspiracy culture, deep politics. So I I just see a lot of weird reductive takes out there. And I don't know if it's just indulgence, just sort of coming from a masturbatory, it feels good to, you know, spin these narratives about Travis Scott being involved in a mass ritualistic sacrifice. And here's the evidence that he did this because he uses a, um, imagery from the Illuminati and Freemasonry in it. I mean, a lot of these pop stars appropriate imagery like that. But to think that they're actually practitioners of the occult or black magic, you're really giving these people way too much fucking credit. Just because Lady Gaga is eating a cake that looks like Marina Abramovich, the performance artist at one of her very expensive L.A. dinners, um, it doesn't mean that Lady Gaga is a satanic ritualist. It's just weird how people have gotten themselves in this headspace who I think a lot of them aren't even evangelical or Christian themselves. They just maybe have gotten too into Epstein and, you know, child sacrifice and things like that to the point where it's almost bending your brain enough to go to the place of believing this is satanic isn't really that much deeper. I guess I just think ultimately, first of all, you're giving a lot of these LA celebrity flakes way too much credit when at most they're probably just new age, you know, if they practice any form of the quote-unquote occult, that could bear, new age sort of could barely be described as a cult, that doesn't mean it's real. I, mean, I guess ultimately what I'm saying is just remember that there are a lot of real conspiracies out there, and you don't have to attribute some kind of demonic force to, you know, people in U.S. intelligence and the U.S. government doing absolutely heinous shit. I mean, I think it just leaves me in a few random places. QAnon seems like it's still going. I don't know how. I don't know who's driving it at this point, but I did notice that some prominent JFK researchers were commenting on this giant crowd of QAnon supporters awaiting John F. Kennedy Jr.'s return at Daily Plaza. They were commenting on it by saying, you know what? It seems like QAnon is a psyop because we're right on sort of the precipice of Oliver Stone releasing his new epic JFK documentary about the assassination. And all of a sudden, here's this giant burst of, you know, crazies getting all this news about John F. Kennedy Jr. returning from the dead, or I guess that they believe he was never killed. Apparently, that wasn't even Q of QAnon that dropped that originally. That was, I guess, someone named E that tried to get into the mix and like battle with Q. And Q actually tried to debunk this, but it persisted in the QAnon movement. So I don't know what that even means. I mean, to me, that's there's got to be something weird there, like an algorithm was, you know, feeding into this or something. Like somebody on Facebook, you know, maybe at the bare minimum did it as a prank. They're like, shit, what if we really jack up the JFK Jr. returning from the dead, like QAnon adjacent? theory what if we really amp that up on on the algorithm and just see what happens and it's hard to explain why it's still happening if q stopped posting because it's been actually 
uh, I would say almost a year now. Has it been a year since Q stopped posting? I can't remember the exact date which Q stopped posting, but it's been a really long time. So that's really all I have to say about QAnon because there's not really anything else to fucking say about it other than I still think there were elements of it that were a psyop. Um, you know, at the very least, there was something algorithmic to it. There was something that, not that QAnon poster was an algorithm. I mean that the that the boosting of it, that the way it was uh, influencing people, the strength of it was very unusual. And you could maybe say it was a confluence. It was a perfect storm of all these different things sort of coming together. But I think it was, I, I think there was definitely more to it than that. I don't even know why Twitter is getting involved in this bullshit. But just as a side note, Paul Singer from the Washington Free Beacon, a top neocon GOP donor, who's basically Marco Rubio's main funder back in the day, back during the 2016 elections, he sits on Twitter's board of directors. So uh, that guy actually started the funding of the Fusion GPS oppo research project on Trump before it was passed to the Democratic Party, which then is how the Steele dossier got generated. So make a long story short, a guy who was partly responsible or I would say largely responsible for kickstarting the Steele dossier, a neocon top donor named Paul Singer sits on Twitter's board, and he was on Twitter's board when Trump's account got taken off Twitter, got banned. And for some reason, Trump never said anything about him. There was never a right-wing media campaign, hysteria campaign generated against Paul Singer at that time. That's another mystery. You know, we already talked about how the Ashley Biden diary was an ethical line or some there's some reason why they didn't run that and let some other random ass website run the whole thing and they never mentioned it you know what was this what's the mystery behind why paul singer was never attacked by trump or his people after trump got booted from twitter why what what happened with that here we have the guy who was you know you can make a link to the steel dossier yet trump never mentions him He's sitting on the board of Twitter when this happens, and it's just like he's he's just never uh, a target. Very interesting. But anyways, let's let's get serious for a second because this is something I wanted to get off my chest. I've wanted to get off my chest for a while. I stopped doing meme politics. Um, I didn't stop doing it permanently. I plan to bring it back, maybe not consistently, but I plan to do it again. That's my solo streaming show. In case anyone's wondering, it's not on Twitch. Uh, it's just on YouTube. But I play classic arcade and, and classic retro games while I talk politics. I think recently it's just come to a head for me that, you know, after doing all these 9-11 anniversary episodes and especially doing the, the Anthrax anniversary episodes, and just so people know, we've literally put out five episodes in a row about the 20th anniversary of not just 9-11, but also Amerithrax, which was the attack that followed 9-11. So five episodes later, I'm realizing that I haven't said enough about how I feel about the COVID vaccines, how I feel about the mandates, how I felt about the lockdowns. I talked a little bit about it as it was happening and how I was opposed to the general idea of these, you know, where is the line drawn in terms of how long are people going to be locked down? The civil liberties implications of it were horrific. You know, that seemed bad enough as all that stuff was starting but I think now it's sort of come to a head because the Biden administration tried to pass sort of a nationwide vaccine mandate. Now, 
luckily it's gotten knocked down or held up in the courts to some extent. So the federal appeals court actually affirmed this hold put on the vaccine mandates. Now, I'll just say very clearly that when it comes to federal or state law vaccine mandates, it on a gut level, it's a huge violation. On a, just a civil liberties level, it's a huge violation. But just on my own personal emotional level, on a gut level, that's way too far. To enforce using the strong arm of the law to basically restrict your activities based on you having what is essentially a rushed and pretty much experimental vaccine that has not gotten the thorough amount of human testing that it should get. I don't care if people want to say, oh, well, polio wasn't fully, the polio vaccine wasn't fully tested and people took that anyways, or, you know, the smallpox vaccine wasn't fully tested and people took that anyways. I mean, that's not a reason to just sort of acquiesce to this idea that this is sort of being forced on us. I think we need to all admit, regardless of where you stand on this politically, that there is a very strong force that is not just creating an enormous amount of, frankly, really gross social pressure and media pressure, but also now legal pressure. And I think when you have all three of those going at once, it's a very bad situation. There's also an issue with me personally that I've had to contend with, and I've struggled with this, is this idea of a chilling effect. What is this idea of COVID misinformation? Abby and I have been discussing on the podcast for years how dangerous this trend is, where they're trying to stop the spread of fake news or disinformation in a general sense online. It has heavily sanitized a lot of more mainstream channels of the internet, even search engines like Google or YouTube are pretty much destroyed now. You have to go off of those or use some kind of other filter to be able to see a more accurate result. Um, for example, if I type in the exact title of my Anthrax documentary on YouTube, it doesn't come up until like page three of results. And that means that it's being purposely juked or miss uh, or deranked on purpose. That was never the case before. You used to be able to find things on YouTube extremely quickly with just remembering a few keywords. They have basically ruined their search engine to combat disinformation. So now on top of all this stuff, on top of all the Russia hysteria, trying to purge QAnon from the internet by basically banning you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions of accounts and trying to derank or remove you know hashtags or even in private messages. I remember leading up to the election, I wasn't able to DM people links to the Hunter Biden laptop leaks. That's how much they were trying to sanitize the internet. You know, everyone was talking about, oh, they're trying to do, you know, look what they're trying to do, censoring the New York Post on Twitter. And yeah, that was a big deal to try to hide the New York Post article. But again, that sort of overshadows the little guy. All the people like me and you out there who are just trying to DM each other links off the social media platforms. So if they're already blocking politically harmful information to one candidate or the other over DMs because they deem it disinfo or a Russian hack, then who's to say that that's not going to happen over emails next? I mean, I guess thank God for the fact that email at least remains so decentralized that you can easily get an email account and email someone else without having to go through a major corporation. But what about text messages? Well, SMS, I guess the same thing. There's a lot of smaller cell carriers out there. 
but a lot of people use iPhones and iMessages. I mean, honestly, who's to say that they're not going to start blocking or banning certain URLs from being sent to one another? We already talked on a previous Media Roots episode about how Apple is now working with the FBI to detect child pornography on phones and to monitor people that way. So why would it be a bridge too far for them to start banning people passing around URLs to websites they deem fake news on their iPhone platform? It wouldn't be. So when you add this extra layer of don't spread COVID misinformation on Twitter, on YouTube, or any of these websites, and it has such a vague, open-ended meaning to it, then I think you're getting into really, really dangerous territory in terms of creating a psychological chilling effect. As if it already wasn't bad enough to have all the social and media pressure trying to make you feel like a monster for being vaccine hesitant, even, just even hesitant. This chilling effect, I think a lot of people are experiencing this right now. I would say probably more so on the left side of the spectrum, because I think a lot of people on the left side of the spectrum don't want to be seen as Trumpers or don't want to be seen as anti-vax. Being skeptical or hesitant about it or asking questions about it automatically makes you anti-vax. And even let's say if you were just straight up anti it, why is that not your right? Like, why can't you do that and, you know, not be seen as a monster? And that's to me when we're getting into really scary territory, just psychologically. I already started to feel uncomfortable in the San Francisco Bay Area when, you know, San Francisco had a local vaccine mandate where they would make you show your vaccine card to get into indoor restaurants and bars and things like that. I mean, that still feels like a violation to me. A lot of these places also required photo ID because, I mean, if you just had the card, you could be carrying someone else's card. So they would also require photo ID along with the card. Well, they already check ID in bars, 21 plus. But for regular businesses, I think that that's, you know, that don't require 21 and up, for example, just making you check your photo ID to walk into a business, a restaurant, along with your vaccine card, I think is definitely a violation. Just on a gut level, Obviously, this stuff feels like a violation. Now, the other side of it is, I don't think the people enforcing this stuff are doing it maliciously or because they don't respect civil liberties or because they are totalitarian people in any regard. I think that most people are doing this out of fear and safety concerns. And that's what makes this so difficult is you really can't fault, I don't think, the people who are taking that position. This was a very, very scary thing that happened. And I mean, I still kind of almost, I would say I probably have some PTSD from the initial shock of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the supply chains dwindling, not being able to even find toilet paper or just basic products at the store. That was really fucking intense. And I think people are desperate. They don't know what to do. So they just want, you know, to take the vaccine and to try to make everyone as safe as possible. But then the problem with that is it infringes on civil liberties at that point. And how far do you take that? How long do you let that go on? So for example, there already, you know, I already got an email and I'm I'm vaccinated. I already got vaccinated in May. But they're already sending emails out to people who are my age saying that you should sign up for a booster shot now. I had a doctor for the first time at a normal doctor's appointment tell me that I 
he thinks I should get a booster shot. And I asked them, well, is this going to be required for, um, you know, vaccine card? And he said, no, it's just a recommendation. But what I'm worried about is that this idea of booster shots, if this really is only effective for six to eight months, then when, who's to say that they won't require new vaccine cards that always have a certain, you have to have had a booster shot in the last eight months for this vaccine card to be usable. Again, that is definitely a bridge too far for me. At that point, it does feel like a violation and it scares me about where that's going to go. I guess what I'm trying to parse out here is that this has gotten us so politically divided that we're sort of blaming each other for this. And I'm going to maybe say something that might, you know, rub some of our listeners the wrong way about trying not to blame some of these conservatives who have gotten themselves into such a hysteria just over this. I have left an excuse for conservatives who, you know, got into this weird frame over QAnon. And I'll just say that I think that most of these conservatives who are standing up righteously against this would have actually bowed down and taken a vaccine to prevent bioterrorist attacks during the Bush era, no problem. None of them, almost none of them would have been protesting right now. So I do think a lot of this is civil libertarian cosplaying, posturing, and frankly, they're, being, they're doing what they're being told to do. Because there is a strange thing happening here where as much as I disagree with and find a lot of these things a violation and scary and worried about where they're going, I'm also really worried and scared about where the opposition to it is going. Because the opposition to it seems completely controlled and co-opted by like, not I, I don't like to overuse the word fascism, but like right-wing groups. Some of them very big money groups, it seems like. So for example, there was a protest on the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco against the vaccines, rather large protest. And I noticed on the flyer and the information for this protest as it was coming up that it was sponsored by um, mainstream Republican groups, some very big Republican groups, GOP groups. Now, you're not going to find BLM rallies, you know, even though as much as the Republicans and the, and the right tried to convince you that BLM was all some George Soros Democratic Party plot, I'm not even making an argument about that. I'm saying as much as they try to convince you of that, you weren't, you weren't going to find very many flyers for BLM events, if any, that would have just a straight up Democratic Party-like organization blatantly on it and backing it. You are having right out of the gates for these anti-vaccine protests and anti-mandate protests, large Republican groups, blatant GOP groups, funniness. So to me, it was an interesting thing to see what would happen at this Golden Gate Bridge protest in San Francisco. And what happened was they actually did not block the bridge, which in any other bridge protest that was you know, something this well organized, you would think that that would be the whole point of it, to at some point block the bridge, create a traffic tram, get on the news. Well, it turns out that whoever was behind this one didn't want them to go that far. So now I'm not saying if they did block it, that would mean it's not controlled opposition and organic because there could definitely be some, you know, big money groups that might want to create that much of a splash for some reason. But I think the fact that they didn't block it shows you how controlled this is for now. 
you know, as, as scary as some of the school board stuff seems to me, like the, the critical race theory thing is like fucking, it's a ridiculous over obsession by the right. I don't understand why that's become such a thing. So the school board thing where people were start going into school boards and like kind of pushing soft, violent rhetoric, like against the school boards, like parents would because of CRT. I mean, clearly that shit was astroturfed clearly a hundred percent. I mean, unless you're just, I mean, maybe I don't watch enough Fox news. Maybe Laura Ingram was basically telling her viewers to go out to school boards and start like, you know, dropping threats of violence in public. I don't know. But to me, that stuff seemed astroturf. So to see that evolve into the vaccine stuff and the mandate stuff, um, it's concerning because it doesn't seem like it's happening in an organic way. It does seem like it's controlled, but it's also being amped up to be like very agitprop, to be very, very agitprop, agitation propaganda. It seems to be serving a specific purpose. And I guess the, the worrisome thing is that the opposition to this seems like it's being controlled and hijacked by people for some nefarious reason. Now, I'm not saying this is controlled by both sides or whatever. I'm not saying like Bill Gates, the puppet master, somehow controlling these GOP groups. I think there is some invisible politics playing into this that we need to be very careful of. So, for example, as much as Pfizer and Moderna are horrific companies, and couldn't give two shits about actually saving people's lives. You also have to think about these other pharmaceutical companies like Bayer or Eli Lilly. What is their role in the political landscape right now? What are they doing money-wise to shift the debate or to make people talk about these things differently? Now, the Hudson Institute is largely funded by Eli Lilly. Eli Lilly doesn't make a vaccine, but they do make that Regeneron cocktail an antibody cocktail. That's their racket. And who fuck knows if it works or not? I mean, it was like rushed to the market. So, you know, again, it does sort of, you do have to wonder who is moving the needle in these different directions, or even are some of these pharmaceutical companies that are making the vaccines, are they also putting money in to some of these opposition lanes to just make it completely defanged? And why are mainstream corporations like other ones who aren't even connected to Pfizer helping Pfizer just destroy or erase criticism about them online? Yeah, I could see people getting caught up into this headspace of worrying about spreading this gener generic umbrella term of COVID misinformation. As dangerous as I think that is to worry about that or to react to that, it makes less sense to me why certain entities' social media would be like running cover for Pfizer directly. But here's what I feel bad about. I know that there are probably real people out there because it's just a given. I'm just going to make this blanket statement. There are real people out there right now who have gotten side effects from the vaccine and they are being overshadowed by people who may be lying about side effects or maybe are just spreading like urban legends or exaggerated game of telephone side effects through social media. So I legitimately feel really, really bad and very empathetic for people who have side effects from the vaccines and who cannot get their story out through the sea of chain letter, grandma, QAnon vibe, alternative media flood to express those experiences that they're having. Because nobody is going to take anything seriously if all they're seeing is stuff like 
screenshots of Facebook posts. I mean, I've seen people spreading around stuff online that's like, oh, look at this Facebook post by this, you know, teenage guy who said he was about to take the vaccine, even though he was afraid to. And then two days later, he dies. And there's all these like Facebook posts talking about how everybody's really sad that he died. I mean, who is this guy? Uh, what was his official cause of death? I mean, I'm just, I guess I just get confused seeing this stuff thinking like I would actually have to do legwork to verify what I'm seeing and to understand how this has been verified. But yet I think a lot of people just spread it around the internet without doing that. And it makes me wonder how seriously they're actually taking this or if it's, because I think just when you blast that stuff out, uh, without verifying it over stuff that is verified or where you can actually get like a fur, like a person talking to a camera who seems really trustworthy and believable. And like, they're not, you know, some political plant talking about their actual side effects from the vaccine. Like something like that is different than spreading around like ambiguous Facebook posts that are unverifiable. And I get it. I understand the eagerness to want to get the word out and warn people. If you think there's a danger out there, there's good intent behind that. But I do think people get a little ahead of themselves and get a little, you know, more into the act of doing it, how it feels good to them to, you know, sort of, you know, light the warning beacons. It feels good to them to do that. And it serves some sort of, you know, maybe a little bit of an endorphin spike for them. And it's actually more challenging and a little bit more complicated emotionally to have to do the legwork of actually verifying some of this stuff and then maybe even you know, changing your mind based on information you find. Like if you see a Facebook post, for example, that's particularly provocative, uh, something having to do with COVID that's very reactionary seeming, but it seems true to you and, and it's hitting you on a gut level. Um, you know, sometimes it, it might be a little challenging in your mind to actually go back on that. If you're like, oh, actually this, you know, this isn't really verified. This isn't really verifiable. So I can understand the psychology behind that. I just think Ultimately, if it's really important for you to warn people and if you're worried about this stuff, make sure that there's room for the real verifiable stuff. And look, I, I'm I'm I have problems with many sides of this whole debate. Just how fucking politicized it's become just almost makes me physically ill in a way. I just think it's really important to at least not participate in spreading unverifiable information. Like, especially if you do want to create awareness about side effects of the vaccine, because I do think you, you'd have to be extremely naive to think that there aren't any. I mean, of course, there are going to be some. There's side effects to every single vaccine that's out there. I, I don't think you can, if you're a medical professional listening, name me one that doesn't have side effects. I mean, I challenge you. So I talk to people in healthcare, um, some of them nurses, some of them doctors, other people just in the healthcare profession. And, you know, some of them, I think what it really comes down to is, are you the type of person who is already skeptical of pharmaceutical companies? Are you already cynical about, uh, you know, the way the U.S. government um, is, cares about public health? How cynical are you already? And that's really going to determine, I think, how you feel about these vaccines. And if even if you buy into the idea that they're really, really dangerous, um, I think it's going to, it's just sort of your already existing confirmation bias seems to be the determining factor in that. I actually don't know anybody personally 
and maybe you do if you're listening. I don't know anybody personally who completely switched their opinion on COVID and the vaccines based on like a, a lived experience they had where like, for example, you know, you hear these stories about, you know, people who don't want to be vaccinated, almost dying in the hospital from COVID. And then all of a sudden saying like, everybody needs to take the vaccine. I mean, all that like sort of CNN type of spin. I mean, like that stuff to me is like, just seems like weird spin. I mean, maybe there, there's, I'm sure there's some people maybe out there who've had that experience. They're sort of being used as props on CNN to push that particular point of view. I almost died from COVID. So now I think everybody should take the vaccine. And I was an idiot for, you know, being an anti-vaxxer or whatever. I mean, I think just this amount of social pressure is just overwhelming. It's, I think we all have to acknowledge it's very intense and, and sort of coming from all directions. You know, like even if you're someone like me who acquiesced to the sort of the convenience of the vaccine and, and made my own personal choice to do it, even though I didn't love doing it and I have a lot of issues with it, I feel afraid to talk about it with other people who have a very openly righteous anti-position because I'm afraid that they're judging me. And so I think a lot of those people might even feel stressed out that they're being judged because of the things they hear on some of the media channels that judge people who are vaccine skeptical or hesitant. So that's part of what I mean by holding space. And I do think that there is such an enormous amount of social pressure, even just internally, that maybe even some people who have gotten side effects were afraid to report them because they didn't want to feed into any sort of anti-vax hysteria or whatever. So there's a, I think there's just a lot of weird mindfuckery happening. And we just need to give ourselves a break and realize that the people who are manipulating us, the sort of reptile brain agitprop stuff coming from all directions is not helping the situation. I also just want to say to people who have platforms and shows and, you know, big followings on social media who like to post um, medical literature or science papers having to do with COVID and use that to bolster their, uh, their arguments for or against certain things, I think just be aware that most people can't decipher that stuff very easily. And they're probably just going to go along with their confirmation bias that they already have. Or they're just going to trust what, you know, you as the host or the platform, how you're interpreting it for them. So just keep that in mind. I think a lot of people don't realize the amount of influence they wield. Some of these YouTube channels that have, you know, millions of subscribers that seem to throw around science articles sometimes that don't seem to really understand what they're talking about, seems a little flying by the seat of your pants. Like it's almost like they just had someone research, you know, what other shows were talking about. And it just, I guess it, it just seems irresponsible to me to have such a big platform, you know, just repeat other people's stuff. I think people who are civil libertarian minded, uh, they know on a gut level that they're, they don't want to go along with all these restrictions and controls and they're becoming increasingly restrictive. So some of those people are getting increasingly agitated. And I think that's understandable. But I think my perspective is more like, Oftentimes, I don't even know how I feel about this. I don't want to get COVID. I know some people who have gotten it. Uh, one person in particular who has long COVID symptoms, and it sounds terrible. I don't want any of my relatives to die from COVID. I think that there is evidence out there, as much as I'm skeptical of these vaccines, that there is evidence out there to suggest 
that they actually lessen your chances of having serious effects from COVID or dying from it. Now, do they prevent the spread of COVID? No, it doesn't seem like they actually do. Did Colin Powell die from COVID even though he was vaccinated? Yeah, it seems like he did. So, I mean, I'm not like, I don't have faith in the idea that these things are a magic cure to this at all. Um, not even close. And if this is the solution to this, I mean, that's awful that as a society, we couldn't collectively, you know, do a better job and that we have to rely on a rushed vaccine like this. Um, it's scary. It sucks. And, you know, I guess I would just say on both sides, if you know someone who isn't vaccinated, who chose not to get vaccinated, you know, try to hold space for that and actually understand it. And I think that the opposite is true too. If you are someone who absolutely refused to, and you think the only people who do it are human guinea pigs, you have a point too. And I think that it's good to hold space for people who have chosen to get it for whatever reason, whether that was out of fear, convenience, because their job made them do it and they didn't want to lose their job. I mean, I think it's a hard thing to ask people, you know, to take an activist position where you're literally willing to blow your income. And I think when it comes to people who make their money online, it becomes more murky. It's like, what do you, you know, you don't have to go into an office and show a vaccine passport to do your job online, but you do have to skate this line of what you can and cannot say in terms of what is COVID misinformation. And that line has become way too blurry and confusing. And I think it's affecting people on a psychological level. I talk to people privately who are even worried of what they even say on Twitter about COVID because Twitter is very, very heavy-handed about who it bans and removes accounts from who say the wrong thing, whatever the wrong thing might be. And look, I'm, I'm not advocating at all that you, you know, only absorb media that is skeptical about sort of the vaccine dogma and the CNN perspective, because I think most of that stuff is controlled in it. And honestly, seems like it's just agitprop in the other direction. It's really, it's toxic. Um, and I'm scared where all of it's going right now. I mean, I, any, I don't know. I'm just, I probably just got nowhere and really didn't explain anything else. I'm just saying, make up your own mind. Try not to feel as much pressure. Try to open up dialogue with other people about this without, you know, really politicizing it and judging people, I think, too. I mean, this idea that, like, you're a murderer if you're not vaccinated and you're among the public, I mean, it's just, that's just such an extreme belief to have, you know? And I just think it's a dangerous mental headspace to be in. And it's bad enough with the Trump era mind-fucking us to the degree that it did and just making everything so politicized. But with this so politicized and so controlled, where both lanes are controlled, I mean, it's really hard to find, you know, honest discussion about the corruption of these corporations and stuff on the left. Even though we know that corporations have cashed out and oligarchs and billionaires have made enormous fucking profits in this pandemic. That's the reality. But the other side of the discussion is how much of this is a conspiracy, this great reset, you know, all that stuff I think is going to need to be unpacked for years and years and years and years. And so to make this all about Fauci, you know, I think is, again, it's just sort of, um, he's an easy foil. It's easy. And I'm more interested in people like Robert Cadlick. I'm more interested in why Stephen Hatfield was part of the COVID response team under Trump. I mean, obsess over Bill Gates all you want. Bill Gates, in fact, 
uh, just said that he's worried about a smallpox pandemic from a bioterrorism attack. So I'm going to loop back around to that at the very end of this podcast because I'm going to be talking about this smallpox pandemic. And I never really finished my point, but this is the reason why I wanted to talk about this on this podcast because all this obsessing about and redigging into the anthrax attacks has led me to what was basically going to be the Bush administration's next rollout. They were going to roll out, and this is all documented, they were trying to get $500 million to produce 300 million smallpox vaccines to give to every single American citizen before the end of their administration. They wanted to do a mandatory smallpox vaccination program that basically came out of anthrax fears. So think about this for a second. Uh, Think about how creepy it is that Bill Gates would be saying this, kind of taking a full circle. And also just think about a lot of these, you know, conservatives who are acting like they're so concerned with their civil liberties now. I mean, on some level, I just don't buy it because I really do think a lot of them would have bowed down and taken the smallpox vaccine out of fears of terrorism. I really do. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, I hope people understand my position a little better. But I told you I was going to circle back to smallpox, right? I told you I was. Well, that's because I am. And I was going to play for you a clip of Bill Gates talking about how he's worried that the next thing uh, could be a bioterrorist smallpox pandemic. And he's worried about this because we might not learn the lessons we needed to from COVID-19. So I wanted to end this podcast with sort of this ominous clip because it's going to be a preview for the next podcast. But take a listen to this. And are we doing things now, or rather are we not doing things now that we really need to be doing in preparation for the next pandemic? Yeah, so it was 2015 that I gave the uh, TED Talk and wrote a number of papers uh, titled, We're Not Ready uh, for the Next Pandemic. And sadly, that was uh, a better forecast of what would happen than uh, anyone would have wished for. You know, the economic damage, the you know, the deaths, it's been completely horrific. And so I'm hoping in five years I can write a book called, you know, we are ready for the next pandemic, but it'll take tens of billions in R&D that the U.S. and the U.K. will be part of that. It'll take probably about a billion a year for a pandemic task force at the WHO level, which is doing the surveillance and actually doing what I call germ games, where you practice you say, okay, what if uh, a bioterrorist brought smallpox to 10 airports? You know, how would the world respond to that? Uh, you know, that there's naturally caused epidemics and bioterrorism caused epidemics that could even be way worse than what we experience today. I mean, some of that sounds innocent enough, but other aspects of it do sound very oddly Machiavellian, that it's almost like, well, yeah, this did so much damage and was so such a big deal that, of course, people are going to demand, you know, that we be prepared for something possibly as catastrophic as a bioterrorist smallpox pandemic. I mean, that's like the most charitable interpretation I can give this video clip. Bill Gates did profit a lot off of this pandemic. He's one of the oligarchs that made billions of dollars 
He does have a large investment in Moderna. Him and his wife, well, now that he's divorced, I don't know what that foundation exactly looks like, but he did have a lot of investments into the WHO. Now, I'm not saying that he controls the WHO or that he's in charge of all the pandemic response. But what's interesting, what he says there that's missing is, let's say that there is reason to worry about someone releasing something like smallpox. Well, what's missing from what he's saying? Well, let's let's parse it out a little bit. He doesn't mention like bacteria, like the plague or anthrax. Now, that's something that, let's say, theoretically, a terrorist could get a hold of and use. What's the difference between that and smallpox? Well, the difference is you would have to pretty much have access to like a high level BSL level three or I think above lab to be able to get a hold of something like smallpox. You can't just grow smallpox. It's a virus. And there are labs around the world that still have smallpox that people can study and examine and I guess tinker around with. I don't fucking know. Maybe there's even people who've done gain of function things on smallpox. But here's the thing. What is missing from what he said? All he's talking about is to have a pandemic preparedness in case of something as catastrophic as this dark winter neocon fantasy of a bioterrorist attack of smallpox, which is basically a scorched earth, destroy the entire planet, and no one would be able to really use it. Not even the you know these theoretical terrorists that would have released it. It would ruin the planet for everybody. And he is right that a smallpox pandemic globally would be much worse than COVID-19 is and has been. Much worse. The, the survival rate of smallpox infection is something like, you know, there's plenty of uh, literature out there to show it's, I think on average, it's something like 70%. Maybe, maybe not on average, but like at best, 70%. 30% of the people who got, would get smallpox back in the day would die. So it's nothing to fuck around with. But I mean, what's interesting is he doesn't even mention, it's like his frame is so oriented toward this idea of preparedness, preparedness, you know, this fantasizing, this catastrophizing. But what about like the actual practicalities of preventing someone logistically releasing smallpox? Wouldn't one of the most obvious things be to like, have extra precautions and oversight at these labs that deal with viruses? Do you notice how he doesn't even mention anything with that? Wouldn't that be like one of the first things when it comes down to something like smallpox? Because how else is someone going to get it? So I just think that's fascinating that either he just is so stuck on this one frame of looking at this. Let's say if someone does accidentally even release smallpox who was handling it at one of these labs, Who's going to be in one of the best positions to benefit from this and also be in a position of authority and kind of be able to look back on it and be like, yeah, I was right. I warned people and, you know, we didn't listen to me that time. You need to listen to me more. I mean, it would be someone like him. I'm not saying he's the puppet master or he created COVID-19 or anything like that. I'm just saying that, like, to him, maybe ultimately it doesn't fucking matter because he's so rich that, you know, he'll probably make it through a smallpox pandemic. He could wait it out in a bunker and, you know, have all the conveniences of life, whereas normal people couldn't. What's the big deal to him? You know, in fact, he's probably even ran calculations in his mind of how long it would take for a smallpox pandemic to run its course and how long he would have to wait to come out of his bunker. You think Bill Gates hasn't calculated that in his own mind? Of course he has. 
This is one of his the, his main hobbies. He's no longer a Microsoft Windows guy. He's a pandemic guy. So, yeah, you're damn right he fucking has ran these calculations. But I just think it really does go to show how it is sort of like an empire baby mindset that he's maybe even taking advantage of that there is sort of an American mentality, especially after 9-11, that the so-called the terrorists, these inhuman monsters would be willing to destroy the planet for everybody, to ruin it for everybody. That's what kind of terrorists they are. We can't put anything past them. They have no morality whatsoever. They are basically nihilists, is what they're saying. When in reality, it's the neocons who are the real nihilists and Machiavellianists who think in everything of ends justifies the means. But again, Bill Gates, if he really wanted to stop a smallpox pandemic or intentional release, one of your main priorities would be to not just have oversight at all of the labs in the world that have smallpox and work with it, but also extra like security precautions and mechanisms, like maybe even like guards and, you know, basically make it impossible for anyone to get out a virus. Like it's just so tracked that if someone did it, they would immediately know who was responsible. I guess it's just to me interesting how he doesn't mention that. But here's the scary thing is that, you know, the anthrax attacks in the United States following 9-11, there was a drill, uh, an exercise that was done in June of 2001 called Operation Dark Winter that involved people like James Woolsey, that involved people like Judith Miller, that involved people who were experts in bioterrorism and involved people who were experts in biological weapons. It involved people who were experts in terrorism and domestic terrorism and all this different sorts of stuff. It was a simulation of a terrorist attack on the United States using smallpox virus. And at the end of this simulation, this drill, the terrorists threatened that they have anthrax next. Now, I guess in terms of just the narrative punch, you know, whoever wrote this drill, I would think that the opposite would be scarier. Anthrax first, smallpox later. Anthrax doesn't, it's not a virus that's going to spread and turn into a pandemic. It's a bacteria. You can kill a lot of people at once with it, I suppose, but it's just weird how in this drill they made it so that the terrorists threaten at the end of the smallpox pandemic scenario when basically hospitals are flooded, there's millions dying, the terrorists are like, next, we have anthrax. So that's what happened in this drill. So this idea of dark winter sort of floating in the background has been inextricably linked with the 2001 anthrax attacks in my mind and researchers who've looked at the 2001 anthrax attacks. They're really linked together in a lot of different ways. Um, I guess my larger point here is that as Bill Gates trying to fearmonger here a little bit, as he's sort of hinting that this is a new fearmongering campaign, that if we're going to be able to get vaccinated for something like COVID-19, is this a new fearmongering campaign? And what, what, what kind of purpose would this serve? But is it actually new at all? Because I just told you that in June of 2001, they were running drills about a scenario of a terrorist releasing smallpox. Well, what else happened with this after anthrax? Did this just go away after the real anthrax attacks? Well, no, it didn't actually. There was a very strong push and rollout done by the Bush administration to try to not just hype up this idea of a smallpox 
bioterrorist incident that could possibly happen next after anthrax. That's what the Bush administration started saying. But they also wanted to get a billion dollars to manufacture at least 300 million smallpox vaccines for over 300 million Americans. And they were going to try to roll out a mandatory smallpox vaccine program to prevent a bioterrorist attack. This was a this is a very lost piece of Bush era history that I think needs to be retold. And I think it needs to be retold because there is sort of a a, a weird link and a historical link in our society today and the way it has dealt with COVID nineteen. And I'm not saying that to describe the political atmosphere. I'm just saying that some of the entities, some of the players, some of the people who really you know, have a lot of influence right now, gained a lot of that influence initially off of the back of the 2001 anthrax attacks. BioShield 1 and 2, bills that were passed, benefited a lot of specific individuals. And so I'm going to lay all that out on a future episode of Media Roots Radio coming out this month. It might not be the next episode, but it will come out this month. And thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to become a subscriber to Media Roots Radio, you can go to patreon.com slash media roots radio. And by becoming a subscriber, you get access to such things as the Florida 2001 attacks event map that I've put together as a resource to follow for our last few podcasts. You also get access to a much more organized version of the anthrax file cache uh, that we have a Google Drive link to for our subscribers. And just by becoming a subscriber at the $5 tier, you also get access to one additional bonus episode per month that's exclusive, that's exclusive just for our subscribers. By paying a little bit more at the $10 tier, you get access additionally to our private Discord channel. And at the $20 tier, you get an unlimited download and rental code for my documentary series, A Very Heavy Agenda in addition to all the other things I just mentioned. So thank you again for listening, everybody, and take care. Federal health officials have confirmed the discovery of some frozen vials labeled smallpox in a freezer at a Merck facility in Montgomery County. The CDC said the vials were incidentally discovered by a lab worker who was cleaning out the freezer. An official said the vials' contents appear intact and there was no indication anyone was exposed to the contents. The World Health Organization has designated only two sites for smallpox storage, one at the CDC in Atlanta, another in Russia.